Live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, it's the St. Louis Realtor Podcast with your host, Adam Cruz. Welcome, everybody, to the St. Louis Realtor Podcast, live from the rooftop of the Herman London Real Estate Group in beautiful downtown Maplewood, Missouri. I'm here with my co-host, Shannon St. Pierre. Oh, can you believe how warm it is out today? Still in October? Beautiful out today, out here on the rooftop. It's a little sunny. And we are super excited because Shannon is bringing in her friend. Is this your friend? I, I know them because of the tax sale stuff. And you want to be friends. Shannon is bringing in her friend, who she wants to be friends with, Julie Ostrom. Yes. An attorney at law. From Beck Ostrom Suites. The law, law firm, firm right in Tower Grove East, right, which is Tower Grove. right around the corner for me. So I will deliver wine to them occasionally, which is why they know me okay. so well. Um, because Dale actually, uh, um, we converse and I bounce off ideas uh, in regards to the tax sale. Okay, and we are but post today, recording this pre intro here because we've already recorded the podcast. And we just wanted to say to anyone who's listening, A, we did this podcast in an unusual format. We did it in a big group setting in a conference room, so the sound isn't up to our normal snuff, right? Right, but I'd like to say, in our defense, it was just a last-minute idea to go ahead and record the meeting. We invited Julie in, not necessarily to do the podcast, but to do have a roundtable conversation about tenant landlord law and real estate law in general. Absolutely. And, and it and was just, I knew how valuable the information was, so it was just kind of an idea to go ahead and record might it. Might as well, right? And she had a great presentation, and we kind of sprinkled in a few questions. And so what we had in the room was a bunch of people, not necessarily property managers with our company, agents with our company who maybe don't always listen or don't always deal with investments and stuff. Yeah, I'd, only, I'd say we only had really one or two property managers, actual property managers in the room. So then the remainder, six, seven, eight people here, don't deal with tenant landlord law. And the reason why we're wanting to say that is because they asked maybe more elementary questions and we don't want people to think that Herman London Property Management didn't know this stuff, right? Right. Actually, um, what I found from I, property manager, property management perspective is I found... I felt uh, relieved and revived. And how and well we're doing. How well we're doing. How above board. And yeah. With all the, all, everything she said, there was nothing that's like, oh, dang, we need to be doing that. No. Right? Not really. Mm-mm. Other okay. than the uh, bed bag thing, addendum, now, bed bug apparently. Addendum. Yes. Okay. So we'll get started with the podcast now. But, but yeah, to... but I really do think that this podcast was really, is probably really great for beginning investors or invest investors in the earlier stages in regards to buy and holds just because the, the questions that were asked by some of our other um, people in attendance and agents were just questions that the investors have all the time. So thank you for listening and take care. Welcome everybody. We have Julie Ostrom here from Beck Ostrom Suite Attorneys at Law. We're excited to have her here in the office, and she's going to talk to us, and then we're going to ask some questions. So prepare your questions while Julie tells us a little bit about herself. Hi, everybody. So uh, I'm Julie. Uh, I was licensed to practice law in 2009, so uh, my area of specialty is in real estate, specifically investment property. Uh, buying, selling, working on it, um, leasing it, evicting people. So I've got a little presentation just talking about leasing and evictions. 
So uh, why is it important to have a lease agreement? Um, it provides parameters for the landlord-tenant relationship. You don't need a lease agreement. There's such a thing as a verbal lease. You can evict a tenant on a verbal lease, but there's a couple of things that you can't get if you don't have a written agreement. So one, late fees. There's no automatic right to collect late fees unless you have a lease agreement that allows you to have it. Um, being reimbursed for your attorney's fees and court costs. Um, have, that has to be a provision in the lease. Uh, there's no remedy for that under common law or by statute. In Missouri, being able to recoup your attorney's fees is either by statute or by agreement. Um, and then waiver of the right to a jury trial. So one of the things that can really stretch out an eviction is a tenant asking for a jury because it just takes the court months to be able to impanel a jury for a small civil case like that. Mostly the juries are impaneled for big criminal cases. Um, but you can actually waive the right to a jury trial in the lease agreement. Um, so how long should a lease be for? Standard is one year, but there's also a month to month as an option. And so as a landlord, it's really up to you based on how you want to lease to people based on how you're going to manage the property. So if you have a month to month tenancy, you can terminate the tenancy at any time with one month's notice, but so can the tenant which means a tenant can vacate. One year gives you at least some hope of a steady income stream and maybe even for longer. So both parties really benefit from a term. Um, and then at the time of the term, with the lease, we call it when the lease terms, is at the end of the, the lease period. The terms of the lease stay in place. However, it, turn, it turns into what's called a month-to-month -month tenancy. So if you have a lease from January 1, 2018 to December 31st, 2018, and the tenant stays on January 1, 2019 and pays rent and you accept rent, they are still your tenant and all the terms of the lease, including the attorney's fees provisions or the late fees, still apply, but they're a month-to-month -month tenant. And that's so, in the, the standard Missouri form that we're using? Is that the... Or is that any lease? That's just how it works. Yeah, that's by operation of law. But yes, in the residential uh, lease agreement that Missouri realtors have access to, I mean, it reads exactly the same, the start date, end date. But if the tenant stays and you don't have them sign a new lease with a new term, they just automatically convert to a month to month. The other thing is, is you can include a termination clause. So if a tenant wants to vacate early, rather than there being a fussing and fighting over, well, you have a one-year lease and you're still have six more months, Add a termination clause that says, pay me two months rent, and um, I'm going to forfeit your security deposit, and you can move out, right? To, to offer an option for people to be able to terminate without having to fuss and fight over it, which, I, I mean, any, anyone in here who's a landlord knows, you periodically you have tenants that just want to, they want to move in the middle of their lease, or they get a different job, or they, get, they relocate, or they want to move in with a partner. Right. Um, so... Another thing that's important about lease is you identify your monthly rent in the day that it's due, right? So uh, tenants, some tenants have a tendency to trickle in their rent pay on a weekly basis, right? So having an identified due date and the monthly rental amount, or if there's a grace period, you can add that in. Um, late fees also under common law need to be what's considered reasonable. So uh, if the rent is $400 a month, and the tenant hasn't paid for 30 days and their late fees total more than their rent, those would not be considered reasonable late fees. Um, I'm opposed to daily late fees, mostly because they're just really too hard to track. It's a lot of admin time. Um, and one thing that I will suggest based on a case I just recently tried in the city, there are a lot of my landlords now that are doing what's called a rent abatement. So rent, say, is $600, but if you pay on the first, it's $550, right? 
there's no late fee then. So judges have discretion in court to, to forgive late fees. And it's one thing that they do to try to split the baby when we have a trial. You know, they, they want to give the tenant a little bit of something because they're booting them out of the place, right? Um, so judges don't consider a renovatement a late fee. <laughs> and actually, it's, it's an incentive to pay on time. But at this, because that's, that's what a late fee is. It's also an incentive to pay on time. But right. it, it, it seems to work better. So it's something new that might be a thing to suggest to clients or for any of you that actually do have your own rental property. Um, the other thing is you can identify who pays what utilities and when they have to put the utilities in their name. I have a lot of clients that end up chasing around Ameren bills because the tenant never transfers the utilities into their name and it's still in the landlord's name, but they, they owe Ameren now $600. Okay, I have a question. So I have a property and my tenant didn't pay his Ameren bill. They're not going to come back after me for that, right? They'll put him into collections. Is over it that? in the tenant's name? It was in the tenant's name. Yep, that will follow him around. So they, Amaran should let my new tenant yep. start new service as long as they don't have a balance. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. water, sewer, and trash in the city is different. So my clients that own single-family homes in the city, the tenants pay the water, sewer, trash. I mean. Right, but, but MS, I had somebody leave me holding a water, water and trash bill for like seven hundred dollars. Well, MSD will not allow you to put the the, the sewer no, bill in the tenant's MSD name. Water. I get it. I get it. But you oh. said water, sewer, trash. Okay. So sewer is MSD. Water right. and trash is a different story. That's the city of St. Louis, right? That That's refuse di division. Yeah, that also stays in the landlord's name. So if you want to collect those, you need to add that into the rent, and then you pay the bill. Um, so security deposits is also a brief thing that we need to talk about. It produces so much litigation. I get involved in so many of these failure to return security deposit cases. I tell all people they should just kiss their security deposit goodbye when they pay it. But a lot of tenants don't feel that way. Um, so there has been some recent changes to the Missouri statute that just went into effect on August 28th. And um, you guys will all be familiar with this that are managers because the MREC has rules related to segregation of security deposits. So there is now a new rule that just went into effect that's actually codified in uh, Missouri 535 that says security deposits have to be kept in a separate account that's insured by the FDIC. And there was a recent Supreme Court decision here in Missouri that said if you own rental property and all of your tenants moved out on the same day and all of them were owed their full security deposit back, you better have an account that has that much money in it, right? Security deposits are not landlord's money. They're the tenant's money until the tenant vacates and the landlord completes their inspection for damages. So you're holding someone else's money as a fiduciary. You, you cannot spend it. You cannot commingle it. So um, having some pretty clear rules about security deposits and inspections in a lease is, is really important because, one, it, it, it defines what your tenant should expect. But you have 30 days from the date the tenant vacates to do an inspection and send notice. And even though the court has some discretion to determine, like, if notice is six days late, how egregious is it, you, you don't want to. Send it in two weeks. Because if the tenant has any little bit of an in, I'm, like I said, I'm seeing, I'm litigating these security deposit cases all over the place. And it is just, it's a mess. And ultimately the judges don't feel great about the cases, so they end up giving the tenant some money back. So is it potentially an issue later if I haven't kept the security deposit separate? Nope, it, when it, if you've already, if you collected it before August 28th, 2018, that law does not apply. But now moving forward. forward. So if, a ten, if I felt like I should get to keep a security deposit 
a judge would look at the fact that I didn't have it in an account and take that into account when making their decision or not? Do you get what I'm asking? Yeah, but okay, so if you move someone in now, right. yeah, put it in a separate account. I'm telling all my clients, just go, go to the bank that you already bank at where you deposit your rents and open a security deposit account, right? They'll put that on, you can put that on your checks, you know? Um, but no, if you were litigating that right now and this tenant moved in in 2016, mm -hmm. no, the judge will not look at that now, but they will moving, moving forward. forward. They will. And here in Urban London, we do keep separate accounts, and that's it's like we make a huge deal about them giving us separate checks, actually. The tenants have to give us separate checks so we can keep it in separate accounts, and we've been audited and everything, so we know how important that is. Well, you guys are bound by the, the, the rules of the Missouri Real Estate Commission, which has required that for years. That's been part of their policy and procedure for years for any uh, realtor that has a license, you know, mm -hmm. and that does property management. But this now applies... <laughs> To just the lay landlord uh, okay. and it used to be lay landlords didn't have to follow those rules they weren't that's their own property that they're renting you guys as an agent for another person I mean that's why you have the licensure so you know what you're doing you know but the Missouri Real Estate Commission has always required you guys to do that so should we not be because don't we have some owners that do keep the security deposit should we be now telling no them? then that's out of your hands okay. if, the, if the owner maintains a security deposit you're fine okay then I have I have a lot of property management company clients that do that. Okay. Now it also means that if the owner fails to return the security deposit within the time period, management company is getting sued too. Oh shoot. Oh, yeah. That's why we have the security deposit disclosure form, which I hope you think protects us. But we make the tenant sign it and the owner sign it and we sign it, which tells the tenant who's holding the security deposit when it's the owner holding. It. And there's probably an indemnification clause in there too. So generally, what I the first thing I do is file a motion to dismiss on behalf of the management company and try to get the management company pulled out of the case. Because if the landlord is holding the security deposit and the tenant's fully aware, there's no reason to sue the management company. Um, okay, I think we covered everything on this slide. Okay, well I guess let's. So you can't collect more than two months' rent in a security deposit. So equivalent to two months' rent. So if rent is six hundred dollars. You can't take more than three months' rent from a tenant at the time of move-in. However you choose to categorize that is up to you. It can be first and last month's rent and security deposit, double security deposit and first month's rent, but you can't take more than the equivalent of three months. What? So you're saying you couldn't take... Oh, you just said three months. So you can't take two months' security deposit and last month's rent and first month's rent nope. and... Okay, so three months total. Three. Yeah, so whatever the... So if, if rent is $400 a month, you can't take more than... Uh, twelve. At, at the time of moving. So you could say we're taking twelve hundred two month security deposit last month's rent. Sign here, give us your twelve hundred. Oh, and now it's your first day nope. you're moving in. So nope, don't lie. Nope, can't take more than three amount equivalent to three months rent. That's four. Can't take it when. You went at the time of moving. Okay, so you really can only take two months security deposit and first month's rent. Correct. Or you can take one month security deposit first and last month's rent. Although I highly suggest not taking last month's rent. Yeah. Because the other thing is, is you, what are you going to do? Where's that money going to go? Right. You know, where's that? You're, you're just you either if you if you collect first and last month's rent, just immediately apply it to the ledger, because this will always cause problems if you have to evict a tenant. They're going to come back and say, well, "Wait, I paid my last month's rent. I don't owe you anything." Uh -huh. And so it's if if you if you collect it, just put it on the ledger right off the bat and give them a credit for it. They should then run a credit throughout the, the term of their tenancy until their last month, right? They don't do that ever, but. I just like I said I, I highly suggest it because it just causes more problems than than not. Um, and then so the process basically for returning the security deposit is 30 days from the date the tenant vacates. And sometimes you don't know. So really look at it from the date you find out that the tenant vacates. When the tenant <laughs> abandons, 
it, it kind of it might sneak up on you like, oh my God, this person isn't living here. But as soon as you can, you need to go in and do that inspection. The statute indicates that the landlord should provide notice to the tenant of when the security deposit inspection will happen. And I can say the big property management companies do send a letter out that has a date and time. Like on next Tuesday at 10 a.m., we're going to do the security deposit inspection. Like Red Brick does that, for example. They have a whole move out packet <laughs> that they send out. Um, I haven't yet had anyone successfully make that argument and then get their security deposit back as a result of it, though. That somehow the tenant not being given an opportunity to be present at the inspection hasn't ever prevented a judge from ruling that the landlord properly withheld from the security deposit. But it is the proper way to handle it. So it should be that when, when a tenant gives you notice that you send a letter or some sort of packet out saying, we're going to do the inspection on this day, you're welcome to be present, but you don't have to be. All right, so now for the fun stuff. Uh, so evictions, right? So this is my, I was a property manager for a long time. My parents always owned rental property, and I was a property manager the entire time I was in law school. So I've done that job. Like, I know what that's like. Um, so I, I always tell people, rent is due on the first. It's late on the second, and it's delinquent on the sixth. I have clients that will let people go 10 11 months past due and then you know they're so frustrated because they're behind the eight ball and making mortgage payments and things like that so it's really about being on top of it whether or not you make phone calls or send letters or text messages or emails you got to be right on top of it when you haven't gotten your rent payment on time so there's two types of evictions in Missouri one's called a rent in possession and the other is called an unlawful detainer rent in possession is simple they haven't paid their rent you want the money you want possession of the property Unlawful detainer is a little more complicated. Essentially, what it means is the tenant had a right to possession of the property, and they no longer do, whether it's because of the lease terms, because they gave notice, or because you gave them notice to vacate. Can I ask you a question? Mm -hmm. What's the difference between like late and delinquent? Uh, those are just my words. Delinquent to me is when they're six days past due. Okay. You know, that because you could... You could on day two, when you haven't gotten your rent, you could pick up the phone and say, hey, tenant, you know, I don't know what's going on, but I haven't gotten your rent payment. Is it on its way? Is it in the mail? But by the time it's delinquent, it's time to, like, send a letter, send the file to the attorney, do something. Because it takes 21 days from the date of filing to get an eviction in court. And that means you're probably going to roll the next month. So by the time you file you're already going to have a, a, the tenant that's going to owe you two months. And if you if you get them served with eviction paperwork, they're probably not going to pay unless they're just going to pay the whole balance. So you have people that file on day three? Yes. What, you can uh, file on day two, technically. But, I mean, do you have clients that do that? Some do. Is that more on single families or on big multifamilies? Or it just depends on the client? It really depends on the, yeah. Some clients are just on top of it. And some, like I said, some are like, well, I'm going to give them a chance. And they do a lot of... If they file and then the person pays on day four, then who pays, like, your fees and the city's fees and stuff? Depends on what the lease says. So if they have a written lease, then the landlord can ask the tenant to reimburse them for their court costs and attorney's fees. Okay. Do you see people getting that very much? Oh, yeah. How yeah. much does it cost just to file um, a rent and possession, I charge a flat fee of 325 for rent and possession. That includes the process server fee and the filing fee. So rent and possession, a little more details here. Um, so basically, like I said, it's tenant hasn't paid rent. You can file it at any point. There's a balance due. Um, it's filed in the associate circuit court in the county in which the real estate is located. So we file what's called a verified petition, which essentially says that the tenant rented the apartment under the terms of a written lease. Here's the amount of rent that's owed. And um, 
you know, demand for payment was made. So then there is two types of service in an eviction, and this is actually one of very few lawsuits that exist that you can get what's called posting service. So we send a process server out. If the tenants have vacated or know the system and are hiding, the uh, process server is allowed to post the property. They actually post the summons and the petition on the property itself. If you get posting service, you cannot get a money judgment. You can only get judgment for possession. So this is what we call in rem. So it's essentially the action is against the real estate itself for possession of real estate. And I have a lot of clients that have a really hard time grasping this because some tenants have been evicted before or they've had collection actions filed against them. They know what a process server is. They know why the sheriff is there and they know how to avoid it. And um, it still gets you possession of your property back. So a written possession or an unlawful detainer are summary proceedings. The landlord has a right to the speediest process that the legal system, in my experience, gives you. Um, if we go to court on the 15th, the following week, we'll have a trial. They don't have a right to discovery or depositions. It's a summary proceeding. It's very, very simple. Um, so a lot of times, you know, I tell my, my clients, like, if you want to go after them for the money later, put them into collections, or we can do a collection action that's separate. But the most important thing is getting possession of your property back so you're not bleeding and you get your cash flow started. And do you really see that landlords are getting their money if they're evicting a tenant? Some, I mean, yeah. Tom, really? Yeah, and the other thing is that happens. I mean, if they don't have money to pay the rent, where are they getting the money to pay them after they're already, you know, or in the eviction because or after the eviction? it affects their ability to rent in the future. So if they okay. go on a payment plan with their landlord who's evicted them, they sign a consent judgment, um, and they start making payments, then when the next landlord calls for a landlord reference, this landlord can say, well, they got behind but they're making payments and they end up with a good landlord reference. And sometimes they're not okay. paying, maybe not because they don't have the money, but because they think the landlord should have <laughs> fixed the back porch or something, right? I mean, so they might have the money, but court tells them, no, you did still have to pay. Is there any, do you have any, you see what I'm saying? Maybe they're not I mean, I have, they don't have the money, they're paying for some of the, not paying for some of the reasons. Yeah, so I mean, tenants holding out their rent because something needs to be repaired or fixed. Um, uh, okay. which causes the eviction process. So, so yes, I mean, I will say I hear that a hundred times a week. Um, that's generally not the real reason why the rent's not being paid, but, uh, because the, the, the few times I have encountered someone who had a legitimate beef with the property and stuff needed to be fixed, they have the money and they have no problem proving that they have the money. They'll bring a, a bank statement showing I have rent and they can deposit that rent in the court registry. But a lot of times people, based on their Google searches, think that if they come to court when they're being evicted and say, well, it's because the landlord isn't fixing things, that somehow that frees them of their obligation to pay rent. The property has to literally be uninhabitable to abate the requirement of paying rent. But I also heard that you have to, in the city, like you said, you have to give it to the court. You can withhold it, but you've got to have the court hold your rent. Well, actually, that's not a requirement. It's, it has to be requested. So if I have a tenant that makes those arguments, like they, let's say they want a month before we have a trial date, and they're talking to the judge, they're saying, I need more time, I need more time. I'll say, okay, fine. I'll consent to a month, but they have to deposit the rent in the court registry by next Friday. Otherwise, I want a trial in a week. And so you do have to actually make a motion to request that the funds get deposited in the court registry. But... You absolutely can do that, and that is something that I've done on, on a number of occasions. Because if the landlord wins, court cuts you a check. You're made whole. Right, but I'm talking about from the tenant's side, if something really was wrong, 
and it was uninhabitable. Then they could request that, to put their money okay. in the court registry, too. And we did have that happen. We evicted somebody and got a judgment. They said they'd do a payment plan. They didn't make any payments. And I told the landlord, you know, you can go after blood out of a turnip. But then, like a year later, the girl calls me and goes, oh, I didn't know my husband never paid that. You know, one of those things. She was trying to rent something and couldn't. I said, you got to make the payment for the judgment. And she did. They got their money. It took over a year. But I probably have 10 or 15 people call me a year from judgments that are two, three years old that are like, well, now I'm trying to buy a house or a car. And I have all these judgments. And a lot of times, if like, let's say the judgment's 1700 bucks, they might say, I'll give you 12. And my clients are usually like, done. I'll take it. We'll satisfy the judgment. Just settle it out. So I do get a lot of those types of phone calls every year. And it's stuff people like way out of the blue. Right. All right. So in an RMP, tenants can file affirmative defenses and counterclaims. And so that's what we're talking about. A counterclaim would be the breach of implied warranty of habitability, right? This, this place is uninhabitable. Um, however, if they don't file something by paper and we show back up at trial and they start to make these types of arguments, I object and they're inadmissible. They have to provide... A written response to you know, because I'm, I need to be my, myself and my client need to be able to prepare for whatever they're gonna whatever their arguments they're gonna make right just like we gave them our petition we told them that we're suing them because they're not paying rent they need to tell us what why they're they believe that they shouldn't have to pay rent right so they are allowed to file those there's some court forms there are some savvy tenants out there that have been able to do that but at the same time it also doesn't extend the process. It just gives them the right to produce, to you know, give their evidence with regard to whatever damage occurred to the building. Yeah, and the main ones are um, waiver, implied warranty of habitability, failure to mitigate damages. So all landlords have an obligation to mitigate damages in the residential context. Like just because a tenant signs a one-year lease and moves out after two months, you can't sue them for the remainder of the lease. You haven't been damaged yet. You don't know when you're going to re-rent, and a landlord's not allowed to double collect. In a commercial sense, though, that's true. So in any commercial lease, there should be an acceleration clause that says if the tenant defaults, the landlord can collect the full term of the lease. And that absolutely is enforceable. But in the residential context, it is not. Um, and then, you know, sometimes tenants claim that the landlord breached, you know, some obligation that's in the lease, whether it's quiet enjoyment or, you know, I mean, I have a lot of neighbor disputes. And it's usually just better, like, let one person move because they don't like each other. They're not going to, Right. So what can the court order? Court can order rent. They can order late fees if they're in the lease agreement, attorney's fees, possession of the premises, service fees, and court costs. Um, in other types of actions, there's a lot of different types of damages. You guys might have heard about punitive damages. Here, this summary proceeding is limited to just these particular types of damages, which is why you get to court so fast. So then execution on your judgment. So a judgment's become final 10 days after they're entered. If they're a default or a trial judgment, consent judgments are final whatever you agree to. So if it says the tenant has to vacate in 15 days, if they don't vacate, then you can file what's called a writ for execution. That gets filed with the court. The court processes it, and then we deliver it to the sheriff. The sheriff schedules a date and time to appear on the property and supervise the landlord changing the locks. So they do an inspection of the property and remove all living creatures, humans, and pets from the property and then they supervise the landlord changing and i wish they removed the fleas too yeah <laughs> yeah we we had we had a property where the flea infestation was so bad that it was audible when you walked up to the building you could oh, hear it wow. what wait hold up 
Please make noise? Yeah. When there's that many. Oh my god. What? They took like 40 dogs out of the property. Oh my god. That's not. And then, but yeah, so so the, the they came and took all those dogs out, and they said you walked up to the door and you could literally hear it. Uh, oh man! It was a tax sale property. <laughs> Do your due diligence, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, are you saying with this when the sheriff comes, are you going to talk about what we're supposed to do with all the people's stuff? Uh, that is the yeah, that's absolutely the next thing I was going to talk about. So, okay. um, you cannot sell it. You can't, you just get a dumpster and throw it away, right? So in St. Louis County, there's no ordinance against putting it on the street. A lot of landlords will just put it out on the curb and the tenant will come and get it, what people don't steal. But in the city, there's an ordinance that prevents you from doing that. So if there is a lot of stuff left, be cautious about what you put in the dumpsters in the alleys in the city because you don't want to get hit for illegal dumping. There's you know, only so much you can put out, right? I mean, maybe you get lucky and it's big bulk day and you can put that couch out there, but... Um, I tell most people just get a roll away and get rid of it. Um, yeah, don't try don't try to put it on Craigslist because that's conversion. That's the landlord stealing from the tenant. Um, but and it is an extra cost to a landlord. It's a cost to do business. Even is it if okay? They abandoned the house and they've been gone for a month. What do you mean? They moved out of the house without telling you, and they left all their stuff in there. You need to throw it away. Right. I, but I can't. Put it on Craigslist? No. no. She's asking if there's a time frame for that. Nope. And okay. what about giving it to Goodwill? I think that is probably a, that's a safe way to go. Um, but again, I mean, I've had I've defended quite a few conversion claims, even claim even conversion where we've had the sheriff there supervising the whole thing, and then they subsequently throw it away. They literally send it off to the dump, and tenants have still come back and sued. I always call this grandma's ring. So. If, if, you, if you sell stuff, if you go through stuff, then you have an idea of its value. If you just get rid of it, then you don't have any idea of its value. So people, because people will say, well, you took all that stuff out of there. That, my grandma's $30,000 ring was in there. Well, of course it was, right? Of course there's some piece of property that was so valuable that now they have a claim against you. Right. So, um, but no, I mean, if there's any evidence that you've sold it, that's why I tell people don't put it on Craigslist, don't put it up on eBay, because then your tenant can screenshot and you can get, you can get sued for that. Yeah, we've had to throw away some like, you know, an entire shoe collection and stuff like that before. It kind of sucks to yeah. throw away, but I, and I have a lot of clients that take stuff to the Goodwill. I like I said, I I don't think you would get in trouble for that. I know you're going to get a tax receipt for that, but I've never had anyone challenge it under those circumstances. So I can't say I know for sure what a judge would do. Maybe I'll ask the judge tomorrow what he thinks about that. I'm always asking for advisory opinions. <laughs> So then the other type of eviction is an unlawful detainer. So this is where the tenant had a right to possession, but they no longer do. If they're a month-to-month -month tenant and you deliver 30 days notice and they fail to move out, that's when your lawsuit actually accrues. That's when you can file. You can't serve someone with an immediate notice to terminate. Um, so there's, but there's three, there's three classes, essentially, of holdover tenants. Um, so you have a holdover tenant, which is someone who stayed past their termination date, a holdover employee, Holdover employees are always, I, I don't know if anyone represents any apartment communities, but that's, that's always where I have these situations. So um, you, hi, you have a superintendent or a maintenance person that also gets a free apartment. When, when their employment is terminated, their right to possession is terminated. So if you have a holdover employee, an unlawful detainer is the proper way to evict them. 
Um, and then an intruder is wrongful possession without force. So that would be like I move in, sign a lease, pay my rent, and then I move my mom in. But my landlord never approves my mom moving in. My mom yeah. never pays rent. Yeah, what's I'm sorry, I was just listening. So there's actually a recent case on this that says you can give an immediate eviction. You can you can give notice of termination and immediately file. You don't have to wait a 30 day period before filing the eviction. Just against the intruder or just, against the whole lease? Just against the intruder. Okay. If the other party is still there, then you're evicting your tenant. Um, again, these are filed in the county in which the real estate's located, and it requires personal service. It actually, if I if I think the tenant's vacated on an unlawful detainer, I have to go back to court and get a separate order for posting from the judge. Um, so, 30-day notice requirements. Um, I have my 30-day notices when my when clients hire me to do that. I have a process server serve it, as opposed to you don't mail it. Certified mail, they never pick up the green card, um, and you want to make sure you know the exact date that the notice has been served. So I usually have it served by a process server and posted. Um, oops, I saw a typo. Um, so notice has to be given on or before the rent payment due, due date. So that means you give notice on the 1st of October to vacate by the 31st of October. You can't give notice on the 5th of October to vacate on the 5th of November. It's based on the rent payment period. So if, if uh, rent's due on the 15th, it's 15th to the 14th. Can I go, you said that you have the process server serve, means a person goes and gives them the paper but you said you have it posted too. Mm -hmm. I'm confused because I thought you said if they post it, that means you can only get possession, not click. This right. is a notice of termination, not a. There's, it's not a summons to okay. court. Okay. Yeah, this is this is the initial part of it. So we're, we're we're terminating the tenancy, right? And so, I mean, I have property managers though that that serve their own. There's absolutely no reason why a landlord can't serve their own notice. Sometimes when the situation though is a little uncomfortable or the landlord, you know, has has been in disagreements with the tenant, it's nice to have a third party. Because the tenant will inevitably say, well, I didn't get that. Yeah, what should the landlord do to prove that they posted it? Take a picture. Just take a picture of date stamp? Yep. Does that matter? Okay. And then we always attach an affidavit to the petition that says, on this date, the landlord posted or personally served the notice of termination. I had a tenant that was on a lease. They moved a couple people in illegally. I didn't know it. But I went over there to do an inspection, and obviously there were people there. And you kind of mentioned this, but I'm confused. So what are my rights to tell them you've you, you got to get these people out of here? Or can I get the people out of there right away? And I like him. I just want his friends out. Um, no, you can't pick and choose. So here's what, what, what I would do if I was in that, under that circumstance is I would send a letter or communicate in, what, in one way, whatever is the normal communication between you and your tenant. If you pick up the phone and call them or send them an email that says, look, I'm, it's my understanding that you've got unauthorized occupants in the property. I want them out in 10 days. If you don't, I'm going to terminate your lease and institute an eviction action against you. And there's gray area, I think, because our, at least in our lease, it, it gives them like, they can have a visitor for two weeks or something like that, right? So could they just say it's their visitor? Or is that why you said you have 10 days to get them out? Okay. I mean, there's a different, you know what a, you go in and do an inspection, there's a visitor as a suitcase. Someone who's living there has a chest of drawers right. and a whole bed and yeah. a whole bedroom set in the basement. Yeah. yeah. So there's so yeah you I mean you can you can kind of figure that out. And they're sleeping. I, in and the I bathroom. recommend in your lease that you list all the occupants that aren't obligors. So the people that actually sign the lease that are going to be obligated to pay rent, if they have a 19 year old son that lives with them. 
put the 19-year-old son's name on the lease, like, in a separate section for authorized occupants. And then any occupant who's not even an obligor may not go through a credit check, but you probably should still put them through a criminal background check. They're an adult. I know you were just giving an example, but with that person being 19, we would make them do a mm -hmm. background check, and why wouldn't we make them be an obligor? Sometimes it's because of, like, if it's parents, you know, they're, they're like, this kid is living with us, but he's going to go away to college in six months, and he's not going to be residing here. So that, to me, is a circumstance where mom and dad would be the obligors on the lease because they're the ones that are intending to reside there for a period of time. Yeah. All right, so unlawful detainer, what the court may order. Um, the court can order double damages, which is twice the monthly rental amount. That's at the court's discretion. But uh, so any period that the tenant stays over after you've terminated their tenancy, you have a right to request double the amount of monthly rent. Um, you can get attorney's fees if it's in the lease, possession of the premises, service fees, and court costs. Execution for an unlawful detainer works the same way. There's a, a writ to issue, and then we schedule with the sheriff. So then we, I kind of briefly touched on this judgment time. So a judgment isn't just immediate. Um, there's an appeal period for all judgments. So a default judgment means we served you, you didn't show up to court, I took a judgment against you. That judgment's final 10 days. So on the 11th day, you can file for a writ. A consent judgment is essentially a settlement. The tenant shows up and says, look, I can get all paid off in two weeks. Okay, well, we're going to sign a judgment that says you're going to pay all this off in two weeks. If you do that, then you get to stay and you need to continue paying rent. If you don't do that, we're pulling you out, right? Um, and then a judgment after trial is the you know, forced judgment made by the judge is also final 10 days after the trial date. So in general, from the day we call you, it sounds like it's maybe a month and a half or so before the sheriff showing up there? Yeah, about 45 days. So then um, a couple of the big cases that we've had recently, some of you guys might have heard about this. One is Conor Properties v. Johnson. So this was a case related to the breach of the implied warranty of habitability, right? So, um, and it went all the way up to the Supreme Court. It took forever for them to give us our order. So the question is, do tenants have an obligation to escrow their rent when they're claiming they're withholding rent as a result of failure to make repairs, right? So... Um, the, basically what this case said, I mean, in, in the situation with this woman is, you know, she's running an apartment from Kona Properties and the ceiling falls down on her and she has this disabled child and, you know, and so she's in a, she's in a tough way. It's hard for her to move. And, you know, also school districts moving mid school year, all of these things that are taken into consideration. So the argument was made is that, well, this woman doesn't, she can't just pick up and move because the place is uninhabitable because she doesn't have the funds for it. And she also, um, she can't be transitory in that way, right? Uh, but so what, what are we supposed to be doing here? Are we supposed to be giving these tenants the right to just hold tight in the apartment for as long as they want until in, without paying rent? So the Supreme Court ultimately said, no, no. They, they, they either need to move out or they need to escrow their rent. Um, and now, though, they've sort of clarified it, which is what I talked about earlier, is that we, we have to ask for it. That's something... The judges won't just order that automatically. Landlord's lawyer has to say, okay, fine, they're making this allegation that there's a breach of the implied warranty of habitability. We're going to ask that their rent has to be paid into the court registry. And in, in the cases that we see, it's like somebody's air conditioner goes out on a Friday and they call us and then, you know, we can't maybe get someone there to fix it until Monday or something like that. And they say, 
they're freaking out, right? They want us to pay for a hotel or pay for all this stuff. Is that, does that apply here? Or? Well, you don't, you don't have to do that. First of all, air conditioning is not a right. I mean, 50 years ago, did everybody have air conditioning? I mean, I, I, I heard this. I heard this. So, and it's like, are you, I mean, my grandmother didn't have air conditioning. So it's good enough in your, in your opinion that we get it fixed within a few days. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah that's completely, that's responsive, especially for something like that. No, heat is a right. Don't let heat go out for too long in the middle of the winter. Okay. That could be a problem. But, um, but yeah, no, like I think, I think if you can get an AC condenser unit replaced in three days, can you define too long on the heat? You said don't let the heat go out for too long. Could you could you maybe give a like some kind of a heater? Like oh sure, that's so. Well, I mean, listen. If, if your tenant calls you and says the furnace went out, the first thing you're going to do is pick up the phone and call somebody, mm-hmm. right? And if that person says I can't make it for a week, then yeah, that's exactly what you do. Okay. You say here, let me give you some cash to go buy some space yeah. heaters, or here, let me drop some space heaters off. Right. But you can show then that you it's. Being unresponsive is the problem. Right, but you, at least we're doing action to take care of it. Yeah, I mean, I have a pending case where a tornado came through, felled tree, destroyed part of the deck and part of the air conditioner. And the, the tenant thinks he deserves all of his rent back for the whole time that he lived there. <laughs> and it was like, it was an act of God. I mean, my client didn't go over there and knock down the tree and destroy the deck, right? And But because it was, there was a tornado in this particular area in Jefferson County, um, it took like three weeks because all the contractors were busy. busy. Because everybody needed a contractor for these types of things. So we can show that my client called immediately and got on the mm-hmm. schedule, but he got on the schedule. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is he supposed to, you know, you can't. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the other case that was recent, which now we just had, since the law changed, it took us right back to where we were. So, Brainchild Holdings was the case um, about whether or not tenants had a right to a jury trial, which is why I say you need a jury waiver clause in your leases. And it should be right above the signature line. You should make them initial it, too. Um, But Brainchild said, yes, tenants have a right to due process, so they have a right to a jury trial. Well, so now... The statute that just went into effect on August 28th gives tenants the right to what's called a trial de novo. So they get to have a real short summary proceeding initially for their eviction. If they want to appeal it, they have 10 days to file for trial de novo, which requires them to post a bond in the amount of the judgment. So think about it like this. You're a landlord. You hire me. We go to court. Tenant disputes. We come back a week later. We have a 15-minute trial. The judge rules in favor of landlord for $2,000 in rent and possession of the property. The 10-day period, they have a right to come in and request what's called a trial de novo, but they have to deposit rent into the court registry in order to get that de novo. There, they can ask for a jury trial. So that's how the legislature has given them their right to due process. So we're back to a real fast eviction process, and if they do anything to sort of stretch that out, the landlord has the assurance that they're going to get their rent. So it's actually, it's great. We're back, we're back to that. That was how it was when I first started practicing. And then it was like, oh my God, I'm doing jury trials like six times a month. <laughs> what, are, what are some reasons that a, an eviction would go in the way of the tenant? Like aren't most people not filing an eviction unless they feel like they maintenance, have a case? Maintenance is really the only thing that, okay. yeah. I mean, so the, and, and a lot of times what will happen is they'll call the city or the municipality and they'll issue building code violations. And one of the things is the letter that comes from the city of St. Louis. So let's say they come out and they're like, you need to tuck point your building. Here's a violation notice. 
if you don't do it within that first 30 days, they send you a notice that says the building is condemned for occupancy, right? Well, it's not condemned. People hear that word and there is actually real condemnation, a building that is unlivable, doesn't have a wall, doesn't have a roof. This is an, it's a legal word, but it, oh, it, it incenses tenants. They, all of a sudden, they don't have to pay their rent. They yeah, don't. and that letter says uninhabitable, too, on the, like, on their cover letter. In, in the, uh, yeah, the, the definition section at the bottom. It does, I mean, it's, it's, I was actually talking to an alderman about this last week in court, and I was like, can you guys change that? I mean, they will literally issue letters for tuck pointing in February, and they give the landlord until July to get it done, because you can't tuck point in February. And that also doesn't affect the tenant. Yeah. It's not common so space. So the tenant's trying to argue... That they don't owe rent because the building's condemned. That we don't owe rent because the building's Wow. But the judge usually... They, the yeah, they can see they through it, but it just stretches the time out. Right. I mean, it's two more weeks before you get your property back. Mm-hmm. We had a tenant whose son uh, was eating the wall, and the tenant was claiming that the wall was lead paint, and so he didn't want to pay rent until we got rid of that. Well, so in the city, there's something called Project 87. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they'll come in and abate lead paint. If there's a child that's living there that's six years or younger, and that's uh, that's subsidized, you know, they pay the cost for that. So that's Project 87. Project 87. Will they come in and test and everything? Yeah. Don't they have to have a child that's sick? Mm -hmm. I heard that that the child had to test positive for some type of lead. Yeah, well, that's the only reason why you would do it, right, is because someone makes an allegation of lead poisoning. So then, then, yeah, then they'll actually send an inspector in who will do a full lead inspection and determine what parts of the property. It's always the windowsills or the the doorways. I mean, that's consistently been my experience. Um, But also, one thing to keep in mind with lead, first of all, everybody needs to make sure they're signing their lead-based paint disclosures. You guys should be doing that on all of your contracts. but then also, there's an exception in rental insurance policies for lead. So if Brown and Crouppen sues landlord because there's a five-year-old child with lead poisoning, right, they can't get, the insurance company will not defend that landlord, which I've come to find out ha- what happens is Brown and Crouppen then withdraws because they don't, there's no money there for them. So I've had, because I've got clients like, well, I'll have to pay all this extra money to make sure I have lead coverage, and it's like, no personal injury lawyer is going to come after you if there's no insurance company. That would require them to, like, prosecute a case, like, go to trial, win, and then foreclose on your real estate and sell it. No, no, that's not what they do. They talk to insurance adjusters. So, um, and for Layla, I'm always like, you, here's how it really works. Like, yes, there's a fear there, but you should know that there's also a mold exception in all rental property insurance policies. So when people, mold's been a big thing recently. Um, I suggest a mold addendum if you guys don't have one with your lease. Add an addendum for mold. Same with bed bugs. Uh, same with bed bugs. Same with bed bugs? Oh, bed bugs are everywhere. Um, so the addendum should say, hey, bed bugs aren't our problem, or what are you saying it should say? Well, so, and there's been several bills that have been introduced that have not passed. So here's the way of the legislature. Essentially, if a tenant moves into a property and within the first week or so notify the landlord that there's bedbugs, chances are they were there when the tenant moved in. But if it happens when they've been living there for six months, 
you know they got a piece of furniture from Craigslist or, or from an alley or something that was invested with. You know what I mean? So there's so that's essentially what it is. That it's but it's always going to fall on the landlord. Ours says something about like if you know the tenant contacts us within I think thirty days, then the landlord will take care of it. Otherwise, it's the tenant's responsibility. And that's the, that's but like the, most yeah. tenants can't afford it, yeah. and so the landlord still has to do it anyway. Because you if you have a four flat, one unit with bed bugs in three weeks, all four units will have bed bugs. Yeah. So back to the lead thing. So can a landlord be held liable if a child living in that property has lead poisoning or shows up or tests positive? Because in the city of St. Louis, all children under the age of five are tested. It's state law. Um, And if they show now a positive result over the last year when they were not living in that, I mean, it's pretty clear that property can a la- landlord be held liable? I have never seen it. I've seen, I've had lawsuits filed on lead, but here's the thing. The landlord didn't go in there and sprinkle lead dust. You know what I mean? So generally what happens is the child tests, you know, gets the regular school test, tests positive for lead. Then they immediately look at everything. They look at their toys. They look at what's at the daycare. They inspect the the home that they live in. And then the landlord has an opportunity to address that problem. Whether they pay for their own remediation, they go through Project 87, whatever it may be. Um, That has always consistently been looked at very positively by judges. You know, that, that, okay, well, you responded to it. I mean, who lets their kids sit in a windowsill and eat paint chips? You'd be surprised. (laughs) Yeah. We're probably going to delete that, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) Aren't you glad you invited me here? (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so, I mean, my little presentation is over. What, you guys have any, do you have any questions about anything that's not necessarily landlord-tenant related? Um, so in regards to easements or, you know, in the city, you come against those properties where the eaves of a house, like the gutters are almost overlapping. How do you even deal with that? Because that is actually been a concern. I've had buyers just turn around and go, okay, I don't even want to deal with that. Like if they don't take care of their roof, it's all going to be on my, all the waters are getting flushing on my roof and well, so that's not that's necessarily an easement. You're talking about encroachment. Encroachment. Okay. Yeah, but you, um, yeah, so you guys, well, and, the and easement's an encroachment. Yeah, sorry. so yeah. easement is a license to use somebody else's yes. property. Encroachment is simply like a, some portion of one person's property, like a tree or something. Or sometimes a house, too. Yeah. The house. Well, it's, but it's, it's in actually, that, that's so much, yeah, the tree, because that that's always... Well, the thing but is, is that's I'm part of your about closing that. due diligence. Like those right. eaves where the gutters are almost touching. and There's nothing you can do about that. Do you know what I mean? Like, if they don't want to buy the house like that, then steer them to a different house. Yeah. yeah. Not steer. Sorry, wrong yeah. word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, show them something else. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Whoops. What about, like, there's a tree, like, on your property line, but then, like, the branch falls over on there? So that, so trees are really interesting. They produce a lot of litigation out yeah. of our office. Um, so you have a right to trim yeah. any, you have a right to remove anything that's encroaching onto your property, mm-hmm. right? So if, if there's a tree limb... I mean, technically the gutter, I guess, although I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, but so you can yeah. cut the tree limb, right. right? 
So can you literally take, for all those trees encroaching, because it happens, and I've had lots of complaints, but can you literally take the property line and go straight up? I mean, like, and that tree just... Technically, it looks really funky now. But if it kills the tree, but, you're liable to the property owner for their tree. So technically, okay. What you're so is now, yes, see that's but so you but you do need to trim with caution. But yes, you do have you have a right to remove anything that's encroaching onto your real estate. So I've had a situation in the city where um, we needed to do work on the side of a property, and the neighbor wouldn't let us on their property, and we got the alderman and somebody, the mayor, somebody else involved. But nobody, even the aldermen, couldn't really find any sort of law or statute or anything that gave us a right to access the property. Well, if there's an emergency, you can do that for sure. But what what kind of work was it? Like there were like bricks facing out that were going to come out, could potentially have eventually fallen, but there was like tuck pointing issues and there was some HVAC work we needed, like we needed a vent going out the side. And basically we were in a situation where the buyer was requesting these things as a part of their inspection report from their inspector, but then we couldn't get the neighbor to give us access. To like put a ladder? Yeah, to... to yeah, because we, we couldn't, you know, it was halfway down the side of the house and then there was no way to access it. But I never could get the city people that I was talking to. I mean, it seemed to me like their only solution was to call... For them to call the like us to meet the police out there and to talk to the neighbor there's not any sort of like law about being able to no i mean you have an inalienable right to protect your property so um that's unfortunate i don't know why somebody would need to be like that that's just not that's bad manners right but you're saying that when she bought the house on the property line that's when the problem became her problem uh, it sounds like she did. They didn't even close. That this was some sort of condition of, of closing. closing. Right. Well, she had bought it and was rehabbing it, and then it was a condition for her to sell it to yeah, the next buyer. Yeah, it was a condition for me to sell it. Um, you can file a lawsuit to give mm-hmm. you access. You could get an order from the court saying, "I need access to this area of the property because I need to." It's a, it's a repair that needs to be made. I mean, yeah. Easement, easement by necessity is essentially. Yeah, I'm not what saying she is. needed okay, to so like unlock her, you know. But to me, like two or three feet. But I guess we would have needed to start with a survey to confirm where the, if we needed to continue forward. Here's a question: We just had a deal where we had the sellers and the buyers had a survey done. And it showed that the neighbor on the one side, their fence was encroaching by six inches. inches, Okay. She wanted to put up, the new buyer wanted to put up a privacy fence. So the seller, the buyer's agent wanted us to notify that guy that that fence was encroaching and that there was a possibility. She didn't say written in stone whether she was just going to butt up against it or she was going to make him move it over six inches, but she wanted to let him know. She could either leave it. Or you can remove it because I am putting up a fence. She wasn't telling him that you have to take it down, but we sent a certified letter. That's and he wouldn't accept it because I went over there to give him a courtesy call in person and say, look, I just want to let you know I'm the selling agent. But this guy's like, I'm a police officer. I've got this is my dog, my police dog. And he was going to be a pain in the butt. Was she going to have to take him to court over this? Because he said the survey was wrong. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How often are the surveys wrong? Uh, well, surveys are rarely wrong. Okay. It's, it's really, it's what you see is that's wrong. I mean, I, I, we had a case where half of the house, like, was on one parcel, and on, I mean, just because of the way the lines have been redrawn over the years, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's a mess. 
Yeah. So the survey itself, I mean, is based on the legal description, right? You know, like four degrees west to the metal pole. You guys have read legal descriptions, right? right? I mean, that's very, I, they're, I mean, they're hilarious to me, but I'm a lawyer and a nerd. So, um, <laughs> but that, that's essentially what the surveyor is doing is they're following the directions of the legal description mm-hmm. to tell you what that boundary is. Um, but yeah, no, it's never surprising to me that, I mean, almost everybody has encroachments in the city yes. of some sort. Yeah. And it's, you know, and to me, it's like, if you're going to live like that, there's a part of you that probably just needs to accept that you should That's just be friendly with yeah. your neighbors, yeah. right? If my neighbor needed to get in my yard, there's no way I would say no to that. Yeah. By all means, get the work done, you know? Yeah. Fix that fence. That's fine. Right. Can we say, Julie, you've been amazing? Yes. yes. Tell us. Tell us and tell the listeners, how can they get a hold of you if they want to call you? Uh, you can reach my law firm at 314-772-2889, or you can email me at j-o-s-t-r-o-m at b-o-s dot l-a-w. And what's the website? www.bos.law. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you.